The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. One of the things we do, just to review a little bit, last week we talked about um, one of these realities, right? And we looked uh, and we, we gave a definition for what abiding is. And we said abiding is a way of doing life in an intimate connection with Christ. Uh, the nature of this relationship is that Jesus is everything to us, the full supply of all that we need, and we are everything to him, the object of his full attention and love so that we can be everything to the Father. The outcome of this relationship is that our lives would produce results for God's kingdom and his glory. And uh, that's rather abstract. And we use the image of being yoked to Christ from Matthew 11 as a picture of that, that we are yoked to Christ. That's how we're connected to him. And it's a great picture of doing life side by side with Jesus, where he is helping share the load um, and he's actually not just sharing 50-50, but it's more like about 99% to one, right? Because he's stronger. He has power to carry that yoke with us. So we do life side by side with Jesus. And abiding is just walking through life with him teaching us each step of the way how to live according to his will and power and purpose. And the reality is, the truth is, Jesus says that this way is easy, right? Easy. Now, and see, for me, this is where I start to see that maybe I'm not living in the truth. Because for me, it's usually not easy, right? For me, the Christian life, somehow I've managed to make what Jesus says was easy, hard, right? Anybody have that experience? Um, and, and it kind of goes like this. We know all the stuff we're supposed to do as good Christians, right? Good Christians do good deeds. We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to worship Him. We're supposed to serve Him. Um, we're supposed to be nice to people. So this is where it starts to get hard. Because right? honestly, it's much easier for me to not be nice to people. Right? We're supposed to say nice things. Honestly, the first thing that comes out of my mouth often, if I'm not careful, is not a nice thing. And, and, and it's, but Jesus says, uh, my way is easy. Right? So my experience is, you know, I, I'm making it hard. I'm struggling at it. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but it's true that um, we picture that if I'm going to abide in Christ, I need to strain and, and agonize and work hard at somehow abiding myself in Christ. Uh, and we do that through, um, uh, you know, reading our Bible and we try to worship God and we try to be disciplined we try to do all these things, pray and meditate and contemplate and supilate and contemplate and, I don't know, you just put out all kinds of words, just make up words, doesn't matter. You just try at those things, right? But Jesus says, uh, my yoke is easy. If you're truly abiding in Christ, it is an easy way. So that makes me think that the way I, uh, I picture it, uh, the way I try to live out the Christian life, and what Jesus had in mind are, are, are not the same. Right? And there's something that we must be missing about the way things really are, 
that are keeping us from walking in this easy path. Um, and I think at the root of it is that we, we don't really grasp the truth, the full truth of what God has done for us in Christ. Um, I want to unpack this statement. This is by Andrew Murray, uh, who really has written some brilliant things on the abiding life. If, uh, if you want to pursue this further, I would encourage you to read uh, abiding in Christ, Abide in Christ by Andrew Murray or The True Vine, both really good books. But here's a statement he wrote uh, that I think captures the way things really are, okay, the way things really are in the Christian life. He says, at the very root of all Christian life lies this truth. That God must do all. Okay, that God must do all. That our one work is to give and leave ourselves in His hands in the confession of utter helplessness and dependence, in the assured confidence that He will give us all we need. Right? And I want to unpack that statement as we look through Scripture today. Um, do we really believe that's true? Do we really believe that God is the one who must do it all? Uh, that God doesn't actually need our help? In fact, God doesn't actually want our help in the ways that oftentimes we want to help him out. Right? Now, it's not that God does not have things for us to do. He does. We act in the world. But we are not the ones who make things happen. We are not the ones who make abiding possible. Right? That is a work of God. So let's look at that and see um, from John chapter 15 how Jesus would explain this. Right? We know this passage quite well probably. Maybe you've read it often. Uh, very familiar. Jesus, in the first two verses, he gives the parts of the story of the picture. And we're going to focus just on these three parts. He says, I am the vine, the true vine. My father is the gardener. And he cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do produce fruit, so they will produce more fruit. Uh, first, let's look at at, uh, at the um, this picture, and I call this point the farmer. Um, no, no translation of the Bible says my my father is the farmer, right? Just kind of unfortunate, but maybe it's a good thing because we would all picture like God in overalls or something. I don't know. Um, but literally in the Greek, it's, it's, what, it's what the image is. And it's a picture of a, uh, a person who's cultivating grapes. And one of the problems I have with the term vine dresser or gardener is like, you know, in Thailand, I have a gardener. He's, a, he's an outside worker who comes in and cuts my grass for me. Super thankful for that. But he doesn't own the grass. He doesn't own my yard. He just is a worker. And one of the images we get of God as the vine dresser or the gardener, we get this picture that he's, you know, an outside laborer. But it's, it's really the farmer. It's the guy who owns the field and who's responsible for it. And so Jesus starts off actually with himself. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And, of course, that sets up this picture of a, of a grapevine in a vineyard uh, that this farmer has planted and is cultivating in order to produce grapes. Um, the, the question we need to ask in this passage is, is, what does Jesus mean by the true vine? He doesn't just say, I'm the vine, but he says, I'm the true vine. And when, when he would say something like that, he's, he's obviously implying that there is a not true vine. There is a false vine or a vine that, that he is uh, replacing that was a picture of which he is the full truth, uh, the complete truth. 
image of. So what would that be? Well, there's been lots of theories, but most, uh, I think the most uh, likely theory uh, is that Jesus uh, is looking back to Old Testament pictures of the vine. And you see that through the Gospel of John. We don't have time to look at how that unfolds, but John uses the Old Testament often as the backdrop to his images. And throughout the Old Testament, this idea of a vine is quite common. But in the Old Testament, who is the vine? Well, it's Israel. Right? Israel is the vine. And throughout uh, the, the pictures where this image is used, it's not a pretty picture. Because the vine, which is Israel, is never fruitful. Except for in rare occasions where it produces sour grapes, which is probably worse, right? So uh, I think the image that, that Jesus has in mind here, and what he's talking about is he is the true vine that Israel, it's not that Israel was a false vine, but Israel was, was only a picture or only pointed to what Jesus would fulfill and complete in himself as the true vine. And of course, if you were a Jew, uh, this would make sense to you because you saw that your relationship to God and your connection to his supply and his life was connected through Israel, right? You were rightly related to God and in fellowship with him and communion with him as you connected through uh, the traditions and customs of being a Jew, right? And, and Jesus is saying here that I am now the true vine. I have come to complete and fulfill what that was only a picture of. And so now, if you want to connect to the Father, you don't, you don't do it anymore through the path of Israel, because I now come to complete and fulfill all that Israel represented. And you do it through me. Uh, and I think that's the, the, the picture that Jesus is giving here. Um, so he is the true Israel. And anybody who wants to connect to the Father must do it not through the religion or customs of the Old Testament, but through Christ. And Paul unfolds this a lot when he talks about uh, dying to the law um, and being made alive in Christ. Um, and... And what's interesting in this picture is that Jesus, as the true vine, as the fulfillment of all that Israel pictured, is himself in a very dependent relationship upon the Father. Right? Uh, Grapevines uh, that are cultivated for producing fruit don't grow of their own. Right? Uh, now, of course, there's wild grapevines, but wild grapes are oftentimes very inedible very small, uh, right? And cultivated vines, like he's talking about here, come about because the farmer has gone to a lot of work and trouble to prepare a field, to till the ground, and to plant this vine. And that vine is, is in a dependent relationship upon the, the farmer, the gardener. And so Jesus here pictures himself uh, in this dependent relationship with his father. Uh, as Jesus came as the incarnate uh, son of man, God in human flesh, uh, he has laid aside his power to be self-sustaining, right? to do everything on his own. And Jesus put himself in a position where he is now dependent on the Father. And throughout this, Jesus reaffirms this, this uh, truth. And he says the Son can do nothing of his own. The Son can do nothing by himself. I am dependent on my Father. I see the Father work. I do what the Father is doing. So that's this picture of the father, uh, uh, this vine, uh, as planted in the garden by his father. And then he goes on and he says, uh, next phrase, he says, you know, that my, my father is the farmer, literally, in the Greek word there. Uh, anybody here named George? 
My dad's name was George. George comes from the Greek word that means farmer. It's the word that's used here, right? Uh, so he says, my, my, my father is the, is the farmer, the gardener. Um, uh, he's the one who owns the field. He's the one who uh, planted it. And it's by his will and his purpose that there's a vine at all, that there's a vineyard at all. And he's the one who is ultimately in charge of its care. Now, this is really important. And this is where we start to go kind of off track. Um, who is it that decided you should be a branch, that you should be in Christ, and that you should bear fruit? Was this something you came up with on your own? Well, no. Right? This is something that was God's idea. He created a world and a universe. He created human beings. He created you and I. And he called and appointed us, as we'll see later in John. He says, I chose you and I appointed you that you would bear much fruit. It is the job, it is the responsibility of the farmer to make the vine fruitful. It's not the vine's job, right? It's especially not the branch's job. Okay, the branch doesn't go out there and strain and go, ooh, today I'm going to make fruit. <laughs> right? It doesn't work that way, right? It's the, it's the work of the farmer, ultimately, to supply all that's needed, and the fruit naturally comes. Naturally comes, right? So that's the picture that Jesus is painting here. It's by his will and effort. It's by his care as the farmer takes care of it. He weeds it. He tills it. He waters it. He provides you know, fertilizer, whatever's needed. Uh, and he prunes it, he takes care of it. Right? That is his job. That is his purpose. That is his mission. Right? So, uh, so that's the picture that Jesus uh, paints here. And then he goes on and he talks about what, what exactly the farmer does to, to increase the productivity of his vine. And he says he does two things. Uh, he cuts off every branch that does not produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they produce even more. Okay, two kind of clear pictures here. It's not hard to imagine this. Uh, the first one is this major chopping. Okay, chopping. Um, if you've lived in Thailand very long, you know that this has to be done often. You either got to burn stuff down or you got to chop it down or it will take over your whole world. Right? And uh, kind of same was true here. They got to chop off the branches that are, are not productive. Now, uh, at this point, there's a real problem in this passage, and a lot of theologians wrestle with this, and I'm not going to go into um, the whole debate, but I'm going to tell you my solution to the problem, and I think is a, a better way of understanding what's going on here. Now, a disclaimer, no commentators say this. Right? So it's always scary when I come up with something, commentators don't. Um, so take it with a grain of salt, right? Uh, but I encourage you to think about it anyway. And, and the problem is this. Uh, how is, it, how is it that Jesus is cutting off, well, first one, how, how is cutting off branches different than pruning? Because right? what is pruning? Well, it's cutting off dead branches, right? That's what pruning is. But here, uh, Jesus describes two separate activities, one chopping off branches and the other pruning. So how would we distinguish those? Because in my picture, anytime you're cutting off dead branches, that's pruning, right? So what, what, is, what is Jesus picturing here when he distinguishes between those two things? Uh, the second and greater problem is this. Um, for those of you who, are, who believe in eternal security, right, 
This, this verse just causes you all kinds of problems. For those of you who don't believe in eternal security, this would be proof, <laughs> right? Because uh, the, the picture here is that somebody is in Christ, right? They're connected to the vine, and they're not fruitful, so God cuts them off and burns them in judgment, okay? Uh, and, and we kind of have this picture that if you're in Christ, that's not going to happen to us, right? That, that we stay with the vine, and we don't get chopped off, and we don't get burned in judgment, so that's kind of the problem. Well, um, most, I shouldn't say most, many Christians believe that, um, that God is not going to cast off or cut off true children. Right? So then they have to come up with all these explanations of what this passage means. And, and usually they come up with things like uh, somehow they really weren't true Christians in the first place. But then that creates a whole other set of problems. So that, well, if they weren't true Christians, then how is it they were in Christ. How is it they were in the vine in the first place? And usually that's where the commentators all throw up their hands and go, well, it is just a parable and you can't over-apply it. Right? That's their, that's their, that's their escape. Um, which is true, it is, a, it is a parable. However, I don't think uh, when Jesus says he chops off the branches and burns them, they were over-applying anything here. Right? Okay, we're not stretching the parable because he says it, right? He says, and later he says, those that don't bear fruit, he cuts them off and he burns them, right? So we have to interpret those somehow, right? We have to give meaning to those words. And we can't just say, well, it is just a parable. You can't overapply it. So what's the answer? Well, like I said, none of the commentaries come up with this explanation, <laughs> but this is how I see it, right? And I think the problem is that we... we we miss, because we don't live in the, in the place where Jesus did, we miss a very basic and commonly part of uh, grape growing that Jesus and his listeners would have understand. And that is this, that a grapevine uh, will only produce fruit for about 10 to 20 years. Right? And that after that time, the, the vine gets to grow old, uh, the, the, the number of dead branches outnumber the, the amount of living branches, and production rapidly drops off until pretty soon it's really not worth anything. It's not producing fruit anymore. So the farmer, the grape farmer, would have two options. One would be to dig up and completely till the soil and start all over with seedlings. But to do that would take years because to start a grapevine from seed just takes years for it to grow and get established and get the root system and grow up. So you would lose years of, of fruit harvest waiting for your vine to get big enough. But there was a shortcut, right? Uh, and this method would only lose you about one year of production. And what they would do is they would take uh, the, the old vine that was dying, that was no longer fruitful, and they would whack off everything about a foot above the ground. And they would leave a stump or a, a, a vine, a trunk, sticking up about a foot with all its root system intact. And then they would take and they would notch into the top of that left, leftover stem new small branches, two or three of them, that would now be tapped into the root system and life-giving, uh, sustaining sap of the vine. And they would quickly grow, and within one year you would be producing grapes again. Now, if you're a grape farmer, which option are you going to use? Plan B, right? And in fact, to, to this day, uh, vine growers use this commonly. Uh, not so much because they, their vines get old, but because, you know, in the trendiness of 
wine production, you know, you got to have the most cool current grape. So, um, you know, you're, you have a good healthy, but you crop it off and um, graft in a different strain. And within a year, you've got the cool grapes that everybody wants, right? Still do that to this day. Well, I think th- this is the picture that Jesus is giving here, right? And he's saying this. He's saying Israel has never borne fruit, right? Old Testament confirms that. Israel has been unfruitful. I am the true vine. The Father does what? What does he do to the unfruitful vine? He chops it off, right? He whacks it off clean at the, at the base. And he leaves the true vine. And he does what? Well, he cuts off branches off of, a, of an, another plant and he grafts them in to the life-giving vine, right? And I think that's what Jesus is picturing here. And this, this solves a lot of problems because he's saying, look, Israel is the vine that's chopped off. They were never fruitful. They were never in the true vine. I cut them off. And now even for Israel, if they want to become fruitful, they will not do it through Israel. They will do it through who? By being uh, grafted into the true vine, which is Christ. Right? Um, when, when, when they're in this process of grafting, they go to a plant that's already living and they, they cut off small branches that they're going to graft in. Uh, and they may uh, you know, cut off a, a bundle of them. And as they graft them into the new vines, there will be some that are left over. Those now um, get cast aside. And what's going to happen to those cast aside if they're not grafted into the vine? They wither and die, right? So when Jesus says later, he says, and, and listen to the wording here. He says, anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away. He doesn't say it's cut off. Right? He says, any, any branch that's not connected to me withers and dies and is thrown into the fire. He doesn't say he cuts it off. In other words, if you're not ever grafted in, you wither and die, you never bear fruit, and you're cast into the fire, right? So I think that's the picture that Jesus is painting here, and it solves a lot of problems in the passage. The farmer, the father, has cut off Israel as the old way to come into relationship with him. Now it is through Christ alone. And, the, and notice who does the work. It is the farmer who takes and grafts the new branch into the vine. Right? God the Father has grafted you. He has put you into an abiding connection with Christ through his own will and purpose and doing. Right? He has put you there. Uh, and you now are in a relationship with, with Christ where all his supply of all that you need can now flow into your life so that you truly are living and you bear fruit. And I think that's the picture. And as I, am, as I uh, abide in Christ, as I am grafted into him, I now become absolutely dependent on Jesus for life. He sustains me in every area of my life. And again, it is not by my will or by my choice or by my doing, but it's through God. Uh, John 1 puts it this way. It says, But to all who received him, who believed in, his, believed in his name, he, that is God, gave the right to become the children of God. Okay, how is that done? Uh, well, we were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but what? Of God. Born of God. Right? How is it that you abide in Christ? By God. Right? God did this. Right? Through Christ, he has put you into an abiding relationship with him, with Christ. Is there anything you need to do to abide in Christ? Well, not only is there anything you can uh, need to do, there's nothing you can do, right? It is fully and completely the work of the farmer. There is nothing you can do to make that happen or to increase it or to uh, strengthen it, right? You're either in or you aren't. And Jesus, uh, the picture here is that if you are in Christ, if you have put faith in Christ, you have, by your faith alone, through what God has done in Christ, you have been put into that kind of connected relationship with the Father. You either are abiding in Him or you aren't. So if you're a believer, you're abiding in Christ, right? Well, you, you, you will say, well, then why is it some Christians bear more fruit than others? Well, here we come back to the original problem. The deal is not, um, not what's true. It's what we understand about the truth, Right? Because the reality is, God has done all this, we just don't live like it, right? We don't live with the reality that this is who we are, that this is where my life comes from, that everything I need to be fruitful and to grow and to have a good life and to be happy and to be successful is being supplied through Christ already. Um, It is a parable, and at this point it does break down, right? Um, and it breaks down because we're not branches, we're people with legs, <laughs> right? And we, we make choices about things, um, but here's, here's, here's what we need to do. Here's our part. Remember uh, Andrew Murray's statement, it is, it is God's work to do all. It is our work to do what? It's our work to be helplessly dependent, Right? To be helplessly dependent. Okay, now this is not that hard. How, how, how hard is it to be helpless? <laughs> it's actually not that hard, as it turns out. Because it's pretty much what we are naturally, right? I don't have to really work at being helpless. But maybe what I need to work at is realizing that that's true, right? Realizing that that's the reality that I live in. That I am helpless but I am dependent. I am in a connected relationship with, with God through Christ where all that I need to live is being supplied to me through Him. Right? It's not that hard. Uh, but it does require that we, uh, we live as a dependent branch. What that means, first of all, is that we have to recognize fully what God has done. Uh, one, of, one of the daily disciplines, and we're going to talk about this more next week, is, is coming to grips with the way things really are. Coming to grips with what God has done for me in Christ. Uh, so that I know and I can have faith and confidence uh, that, that that's who I am. Right? That I have everything I need for life supplied to me through Christ. Because... God has grafted me. God has put me in Christ by the work of, and power of his hand. Um, and I live for that one single purpose. And maybe this is one of our other issues. 
we want to live for many purposes, not just to bear fruit for God's glory. Right? And it's when our selfish pursuits and our selfish agenda get in the way that we take a different path. Because right? this is how it goes, right? It's like, well, yeah, God, that's his agenda. I'm not so, so sure God wants to make me happy. And so I'm not going to trust him because I know what he's going to do. He's going to like make me be a missionary or something, right? He's going to make me serve him. And I'm not convinced that that's going to really meet my needs. And I instead start relying on other things to meet my needs. And see, that's where we as human beings are different than a branch. We have that option. Christ is providing everything. And we have the freedom to rely completely on him. But we also have the choice to turn and start relying on other things. And that's where we get in trouble. We think, God doesn't really love me. He doesn't really know what I need. Uh, he, uh, I, d I don't really want to bear fruit for his glory in his kingdom. Therefore, I am going to rely on other things that I think will take care of me better than God will. And so we turn to other things and rely on 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 those things rather than relying completely on Christ. Um, you know, what is the what is the problem that you face right now, right? What is it in your life that is a need or an obstacle or a problem in your life that um, you are facing, right? Uh, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's something in your marriage or your job. Maybe it's an issue of holiness or sin in your life. Uh, maybe it's trusting God with what he's called you to do uh, and how he's called you to serve. Um, what are you relying on to meet that need? Right? Are you relying on Christ alone? Christ alone. And here's the deal. And I think this is what Jesus is teaching here. Either you are abiding where you are relying fully on him or you're relying on something else. You can't do both. Right? You can't have one foot in the vine and one foot in the world. Right? You have to choose what's going to be the source and supply for your life. What are you relying on? Um, you know, are, we, are we doing ministry relying on the latest method? We love our methods. And there's nothing wrong against methods. There's nothing bad about that. But are we relying on our methods, our wisdom, our techniques, our strategies more than we rely on God and the power of the Holy Spirit? Probably not going to be fruitful. right? Probably not going to be successful. Um, we need to rely fully on Christ for everything. Uh, not our own wisdom, not our own insight or our ideas, but on Christ alone. Um, but not only do we rely, but we're supposed to also be confident. Okay? And there's a difference here. Uh, sometimes we are uh, dependent because we are helpless and we have no choice. But what we're dependent on, we're not real confident in. Uh, some of you have had the, the joy and privilege of traveling to some pretty crazy places. where, And, and I don't know how this always works, but it's, it's just how it works. When you go there to the end of the world, the airplane that takes you there is like this brand new airplane, right? But when you get to the end of the world and you have to come back, the airplane that comes that picks you up is like has one wing and, you know, the tires are falling off. And you get on this thing and you go, I'm in serious trouble. I'm dead. 
right? I'm dead. But you're helplessly dependent, right? Because you're at the end of the world and you either walk 10,000 miles up out of there or you get on this dilapidated airplane and you depend on it. Okay, this is not the picture of our Christian life, right? Like, well, I know I'm hopelessly dependent on God, but I'm not real confident in who he is to get me there. Right? Uh, we are to be confident that the father, the farmer, the caretaker of the vine, knows what he's doing and has the power and capacity to make you fruitful. Right? We must be confident. And that's what faith is. Faith is confidence that God is going to take care of us. I can trust him with absolute confidence. Well, how do we know that we're confident? How can we put this to the test? Uh, well, Jesus, uh, Jesus says this. He says uh, in verse 16, You didn't choose me, right? I chose you and I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that uh, the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. Uh, he makes two references in this parable to prayer. Before this, he talks about if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask for anything, whatever you want. The Father will give it to you. How do we know we're really relying on God? Well, I think one great test, maybe not the only test, but one great test is that we ask God for everything. Right? We are people who rely on God diligently through prayer. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. Because oftentimes when we talk about abiding and we talk about uh, this walk with God, uh, we get this picture that, yeah, of course, people who abide are these prayer warriors who pray 10 hours a day. We talked about this last week, right? And that, that what this means is Jesus is saying people who, who, who can pray a long time for hours on end are ones who really rely on him. But I don't think that's what Jesus means here. And the reality is that... Um, there are people who can pray for a long, long time and actually never say anything. And I know that's true because they can just talk forever and not actually say anything, right? Not naming names, right? But we know those people, right? It's not about quantity, right? It's not about how long we pray. It's about how, how much we pray for. Jesus says you should pray for everything, if, and think about this. If the test of relying on God is that I prayed before I acted, right? And again, not long. Just, God, what do you want me to do here? God, what is your leading here? In this exact situation I'm in right now, what do you want me to say? How do you want me to be an encouragement to somebody? How should I answer this person who has questions about their faith or who's attacking me? And I, I really, you know, and thinking punching him in the nose would be good. But let me ask you first, right? What do you want me to do? Right? Pray. Uh, moment by moment in each event of life, if we're relying on God, what if the sign of that is simply pray? Right? Not long. I love in the, in the Gospels, uh, when, when Jesus was up on the mountain, the, tra the, the transfiguration, Jesus glows in the dark. Peter, James, and John are there, pretty impressed, want to build a shrine up there. Jesus comes down, and uh, if you remember, the other disciples were trying to cast out a demon. didn't work. Jesus is pretty upset with them. Um, and, and finally, Jesus casts out the demon, and the disciples ask, 
why couldn't we do this? And Jesus says what? This can come out through much prayer. But what's interesting about that story is Jesus doesn't pray, right? He doesn't stop before he casts out this demon and pray for an hour and sit and say, okay, I'll do this, but I'm going to have to get prayed up on this one, right? Uh, He says, you've got to pray. I think Jesus in his heart said, Father, help me. I can only do this through your power. Bam! Out! Leave! Go away. And he does, right? It's not long. It's the intent of our heart that we rely on God. That we're not doing it in our strength, in our wisdom, with our idea, with our power, with our methods, with our strategies, with our techniques. We are saying, God, I trust in you with all my heart. I do not lean on my own understanding. In all my ways, in all my ways, I what? I acknowledge you. I think that's the test. That would be the test. Who are we relying on? Uh, Let me close with this last thought from Galatians. Um, and, And just to, and this is kind of a shift of gears, but just to help us really appreciate that it is all God's work, right? It is all God's work. Galatians 2.20 says this. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we really believe in the power of the cross, if we really believe that the only way we can have life is through what Jesus did on the cross, is there anything we can contribute to that? Is there anything we can do to add to what Jesus suffered, to his shed blood, to his broken body on the cross for us? Absolutely nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. He paid the full price through his own life. He gave himself so that we could be not only forgiven, but so that we could abide with Him. And it's through the cross, ultimately, that He supplies all that we need. It is the power of the cross that is poured out in our life that makes it possible for us to live and walk with God in His power and have success and bear fruit. And I think, uh, for me, one of the things I need to do to keep this all in perspective is to daily go back to the cross, right? Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I don't even know what that means, honestly. I don't know what that means. But somehow, when Jesus died, we became um, yoked with him on the cross. And my old life and all that held me captive, that old reality, somehow was crucified when Jesus gave his life in my place. And in that yoke and in that partnership, Jesus suffered all. Jesus took all the pain. Jesus carried the full burden. But somehow I was still yoked with him so that its effect and its consequence were to my gain. Right? Um, another quote, I think, I think it's on the next slide. Another quote from Andrew Murray, and we'll, we'll close with this. Um, and I don't have all of it, but let me read the first part. Thinks not so much of yourself as a branch or of the abiding as your duty 
until you have first had your soul filled with the faith of what Christ as the vine is. It is in Jesus, the crucified one, I must abide. I must gaze on him on the cross as holy mine, uh, Jesus offering himself to receive me into the closest union and fellowship and to make me partaker of the full power of his death. And I love this. He says, there is but one place which is both his and mine. That place is the cross. His in virtue of his free choice. Mine by reason of the curse of sin. He came there to seek me. There alone can I find him. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.